And while you're turning, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the seat back in front of you. Grab one of those. The book of Acts is towards the second half of the Bible. It's right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you get to Acts. And if you're just joining us in this conversation, last week, and Jeff made mention of this even in his, in his opening, uh, last week we got to see the way that the early church operated by a totally different value system than we tend to operate by. One of the things I recognize in my prayer life is that my knee-jerk response is that when I am praying for somebody like Don and Jill, who are about to go into a context where they are on the front lines of ministry, when I'm praying for somebody who's encountering persecution, my knee-jerk response is to pray for protection. God, keep them safe, and then use them. And that, even though I would never intellectually or even think this way, this is the way that it just kind of flows out of me. My prayer reveals that one of my top priorities is that we would be comfortable and safe within our life. And as I read scripture, I see often those who were closest to Christ weren't safe at all. Or to, or to quote the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, like, is, is following Jesus safe? Heavens, no. I mean, he's, a lion, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's good. He's the king. And so following Jesus isn't safe. Look at Jesus' life. His life wasn't safe. But that's how I tend to pray. Jesus, keep them safe. Keep me safe. And yet we saw last week that as soon as Peter and John heal a guy and they begin to use that opportunity to share the gospel message on Temple Mount, they encounter very, very stiff pushback. The very same leadership group that had basically demanded Jesus' murder looked at them and said, if you don't stop preaching in this name, you're done. And so there was some teeth to that. And yet when they come back to their little life group, in the upper room, and they begin to share what's happened, they automatically go into prayer, and their prayer is not, Jesus, keep us safe from the persecution we just encountered. Jesus, make them stop persecuting us. Their prayer is, God, give us more boldness, and continue to confirm our words with your Holy Spirit's movement through miracles. Help, basically, they're saying, help yourself to my life, God. I'm yours. I lay it down. They were operating by a totally different value system than we do. And as we're going to continue in, Matthew, or in Acts chapter 4, we're going to see that that value system does not just extend to the way they pray or the way that they view their lives, that following God is more important than being safe. It also extends even to their stuff. So in Acts chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 32. We read this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. They took care of one another. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them they brought the money from the sales and they put them at the apostles' feet. And then it was distributed by the early church as anyone had need. And then they give an example. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, 
he sold a field and he owned, that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. This, this was just one example of somebody taking a piece of property, selling it, bringing it, and giving the money to the church for them to use to care for the people they were entrusted to. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You haven't lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Not just like died like fainting. He died, died, okay? As in dead. And a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What a perfect message to get to speak on Child Dedication Day, right? Like, this is perfect. It just, and this is one of those passages that, quite honestly, is, is a tough one in Scripture because it seems, at first blush, to conflict so strongly with the picture that we tend to focus on of a God who is loving and gracious and patient with sin. And yet, Luke includes it as a, as a story within the book of Acts, and so there's a reason he included it, and I hope that we'll be able to find that. So let's go ahead and go back to the beginning, back to chapter 4, verse 32, and we're just going to take a look at some of this and see if we can understand what this reveals about the heart of God and what it says to us today. It begins, all the believers were one in heart and mind. That does not mean that the, all of the believers thought the same way, acted the same way. They didn't all have the same Myers-Briggs results or Enneagram results or anything like that. These were individuals, but they were all so unified in their understanding that we are not living for ourselves. We are living for Jesus. He is our Lord. We're following him that almost like an army that was following their general, they were in one mind and heart. And we know this because no one even claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. There was this radical generosity that Luke is yet again telling us about. This isn't the first time in the book of Acts. And remember, we're only at this point just beginning the fifth chapter. This is something that has come up again and again and whenever there's repetition in Scripture, pay attention because that is the way that they kind of highlight this is an important point for you to get. So, so they were generous in such a way that nobody looked at their stuff as this is just my stuff. They were willing to share it. And as I read this, 
I cannot help, and I know that this carries negative connotations, but I can't help but feel like, man, it sounds a little bit like Christian communism, right? Nobody looks at their stuff as their stuff. They're all sharing with one another. We're all in the same boat. And yet, there's a really key difference between this being a Christian communist kind of mindset and what was really going on. And the difference is, whereas a communist kind of country, that sharing is legislated, it is demanded, it is expected. Here, it was 100% completely voluntary. They chose to be generous. They chose when they recognized needs within the early church. They chose to sell their property, bring the money, no questions asked, lay it at the apostles' feet, knowing that it would be used for what God wanted it to be used for. And that's key, that there is a choice here. Because a lot of times we approach giving as something we have to do. And it's not like, we know, I know for a fact that this was not something that was demanded. Barnabas chose to bring it, and then Ananias and Sapphira also do it. They kind of follow in the same thing. But the difference is, Ananias and Sapphira's uh, motivation is very, very different. Before we get there, though, I, I just want to point back to something that in the, in the Gospel of John, uh, John the Baptist says, because what they were living out in the early Christian community was very much what, what John had kind of said. Can we throw the, the, the verse up there uh, from, John, or from Luke chapter 3? So this is from the Gospel of Luke that he wrote earlier, and this is uh, John the Baptist speaking. He said, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. John the Baptist is saying, this is the heart of the kingdom of God that's coming. And we're seeing it beginning to be lived out in the early church. Barnabas was one of those who understood this and said, hey, I've got some extra property. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to bring the money. You guys use it. Ananias and Sapphira also do the same. The difference is they keep some back. And all of a sudden, God strikes them dead. And I read that and I kind of go, oh, great. So basically, don't forget to tithe, huh? Or else. But no, that is, hey, please hear me when I say this as clearly as possible. No, that is not the point of this pericope, of this experience within the early church, of why Luke included it. It is not about you better pay the whole tithe or else in any way, shape, or form. Because what this is driving at is something so much deeper. Generosity was not something that was legislated in the early church. And if you weren't generous, you died. And in fact, even giving everything, giving the whole thing, was not being demanded here. They did, God did not strike them dead because they didn't give all of it. How do I know that? Let's go ahead and look at verse 4 for a second of chapter 5. When Ananias comes and he lays the money down, Peter says, Ananias, I know what you've done. I know you've held some back. And then he says this, didn't the land belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? It, it was yours to begin with. It wasn't the churches. It wasn't like as soon as you became part of the early church, it's not your stuff anymore. It's our stuff. No, it was still your stuff. What are you doing? So, and even after you sold it, it's not like you had to give the money, but you chose to give the money. 
So why is it then that God strikes Ananias and then his wife Sapphira dead for this? It all comes down to their heart, why they gave. Whereas Barnabas gave wholeheartedly, with a cheerful heart. Ananias and Sapphira's motivation was far more selfish. Even though they were presenting themselves as generous, they were radically selfish. Because what they were trying to do is purport themselves to be more generous than they really were. They were putting on airs that they were a spiritual giant within this early church. And they were pretending that they were bringing it all. They were basically lying. But who were they lying to? Certainly not God. I mean, God knows everything, right? It's not like they thought they could pull the wool over his eyes. So who were they performing for? This is the interactive portion. The rest of the church, right? The rest of this group that at this point had swelled to some 5,000 people. This is who they are performing for. They are trying to curry the favor of the people at a bargain price. Like, how much do we have to give in order for everybody to think that we are spiritual giants in this church? And yet what Peter points out in his conversation with both Ananias and Sapphira is you have not lied to men. You have not lied to your peers. You have straight up been lying to God. In other words, you were focused on the wrong audience. You were trying to curry the favor of the wrong crew. Not that you can can somehow buy God's favor, but you were focused on the wrong hemisphere. And what we see happening in this is that they had lost a sight of the holiness of God. We sang a song earlier this morning about God's holiness. And remembering that he is righteous. That he is deserving of our reverential respect. They weren't respecting God when they're trying to pretend. And yet there's another word in scripture for that reverential respect that is due our holy God. That word is yare in in Hebrew, but it means fear. Not, Not fear as in, ah, the Holy Ghost or anything like that, right? Fear as in the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I know that our knee-jerk response, if we haven't heard this before, is I thought fear was something that was negative, that you want to kind of distance yourself from as much as possible, right? But, but there's healthy fear and there's unhealthy fear. Yes, you don't want unhealthy fear, but you certainly need a healthy sense of fear. And, and the best way I can put this into perspective is, is an analogy. I love the beach. I've grown up going to the beach. I was a lifeguard down in Newport Beach for 10 years. I love it. I love to go body surfing. Pastor Jeff goes fishing. I tend to foul his lines because I'm body surfing on the waves, scaring all the fish. And then he wonders why he doesn't catch anything. I want my sons to love the beach as well. I want them to love going in the water. But here's the thing. I know that the ocean is powerful. I know it because I've experienced it myself. I know that if I don't respect the power of the ocean, it will hurt me. And I want my sons to enjoy going to the beach. I don't want them to be afraid to go in the water, but I do want them to respect the power of the ocean because it too, if they 
disrespected, if they go out and they just look at the ocean and they go, oh, the water is small, you know, the waves are small, and they go in without spending 10 minutes on the beach watching it, there could be some monster sets come through. That can hurt them. So I want them to respect the power of the ocean, but I don't want them to fear it in the sense of being afraid of it. Does that make sense? Because in the same way, the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom is not a terror of him. Oh, he's God, he's going to strike me dead. It is a respect for the fact that he is God and we are not. And when we begin to recognize that he is God and we are not, then what will happen is we will begin to order our lives around him, submit to his lordship in our life, as opposed to demanding that the creator of heaven and earth somehow order himself and the world around my whims. Does this make sense? Even if it doesn't, we're moving on because I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time here. So... The reason that God strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead at the early infancy of the church is he is doing it as a way of reminding the whole church that although I am gracious, although I am loving, although I am the God who hears and moves towards you, I am still wholly other than you. You can't pull one over on me. I am worthy of your reverential respect. So it should not come as a surprise to us when we read in verse 11 that great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events, right? This is a natural response when, the, when people begin to realize that God is holy and he is worthy of our reverential respect, our fear. Before I move on, I need to make a confession to you as your pastor. I really, really do not like speaking on money. It is my least favorite topic. So much so that I have people who say, Eric, you realize that Jesus spoke on this a whole lot. I go, I know he did. Are you ever going to talk about money? I prefer not to. And for two and a half years, I have avoided the conversation because I have seen how much damage has been done by people who represent God either as pastors who, who are asking constantly for money so that they can kind of support their lavish lifestyle or get themselves a new upgraded Learjet or, or people, televangelists who that's all they preach about. And quite honestly, there's been so much damage done that I have just become leery of ever broaching the subject. And the last thing I ever want to do is stand up here and begin to speak on a topic that makes you think, oh, I'm actually, this is self-serving. I'm just trying to get more of what belongs to you to belong to me. And that's not the heart of this. But I, I actually understand why Jesus spent so much time talking about money. It's because he recognizes that there is no other God, or no other thing that can be a rival God to him more than money because it has such this powerful effect on us. In fact, if you have a piece of money in your pocket, whether it's a coin or a bill, please pull it out. And, and listen, I'm not going to ask you for it. We took offering earlier specifically so that you would not feel manipulated or cajoled into giving, okay? So go ahead and take it out with the confidence that you get to keep it. Are you guys pulling out credit cards? That's not going to work. That's not your money. That's somebody else's money. 
Oh, it's a debit card. I see. Okay. Well, I don't have any money in my debit account. Yeah, you, you're holding up your cell phone because that's how you... It's just a brand new world. Okay, if you have a piece of U.S. currency in your pocket, otherwise, just trust me. I know. What's written on that every single piece of U.S. currency? What's written? In God. In God do you, does that not strike you as somewhat ironic in this cultural climate that we live in that that is still printed on our money? I love the fact that it is, but it's surprising to me. But that's not the point of why I want you to recognize that it's there. Because I'm, I am convinced that for most people in America, the God in which we trust is not the creator of heaven and earth that the Bible talks about. The God in which we place our trust is actually the very money upon which that de declaration is printed. I would suggest to you that there is a majority of people in America and within the church who when the rubber meets the road and the proverbial rainy day comes and they have reached the end of their own abilities to handle something, whether it be sickness or a child who's going sideways or just feeling overwhelmed for some reason, the first, the knee-jerk response is not to turn to God, it's to turn to the almighty dollar to save them, to turn to our bank account. And in some ways we could say that we fear money more than God. We trust and worship money more than God. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe I'm overstating this. So let me back up and put it a different way. I would suggest that the reason why we place our trust in money before we place our trust in God is because we can control money. We, this gives us some semblance of control over the circumstances that will come. And the more money that I have, or the more insurance that I have, the more safety nets I have under me, just in case life goes sideways. So I can control money, but I know I can't control God. Right? Because he's God. And so I can't dictate how God responds. I can pray to him, and I'm grateful that he hears. But at the end of the day, I know money will do what I tell it to do. At least I think it will. And so the God in which we place our trust is the very dollar and the money, our bank accounts and things like that. And that is why Jesus spends so much time on this topic. How am I doing for time? Holy moly, we got to keep moving. Remember at the beginning of the message when I said that uh, the early church operated under a different value system than we tend to do? This is an area where they operate under the same different value system. Even when it came to their stuff, they didn't look at it as their safety net. Sure, they used it. In fact, they used it to help benefit the church. But at the end of the day, what they were saying is, God... I trust you more than I trust my stuff, so I'm going to use that. I'm going to leverage it. You have blessed me with this, and I'm going to bless your community. I'm going to allow you to bless the community through me. Help yourself to my life. Help yourself to my stuff. They got this. And I think that sometimes we really struggle with it because for us to part with it, we don't like talking about it because we're, our, our treasure is there, our heart also kind of follows, and man, you stay away from that. You can have everything, but God, I need this. Just to, it's like the Israelites in the wilderness 
I know that I want to trust that God will provide manna in the morning and quail at night, but I really want to know that I've got you know, some power bars in the back just in case he doesn't show up, or I want to know I have a little stash of cash just in case God doesn't answer. I trust him, but I don't fully trust him. And so the reason that Jesus spends so much time talking about our money is because he's basically going after our heart. Remember, this is God we're talking about. He, has, he created the world. He owns everything in it. He doesn't need our money. But what he wants is our hearts. And he knows that where our money goes, our hearts will follow. Now, I had planned on inviting a friend of mine uh, to share. Uh, Heather Flessing, the one who, who's karate, like, could beat me up. Um, she, she's not here with us, but she, we had videotaped her uh, sharing how God has shown up. And we don't have the, the margin time-wise right now to show the entirety of that. And so what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to try to briefly share with you the heart of what she shared with me. And maybe we'll find a way to put that up so you guys can get access to it. At the beginning of the summer, Heather came to me and she said, listen, Pastor Eric, um, somebody want to answer that? It might be Jesus calling. <laughs> no? Okay. Um, Pastor Eric, listen, I, um, I, I'm in a tough spot because I'm a teacher. I only have 10 paychecks that come in a year. I'm at the kind of end, you know, end of my paychecks for the season, and we have the whole summer in front of us. We just had a bunch of bills that came due that has completely tanked our savings. And here's where I'm at. I am prepared to put the check for the tithe that I give every single month for my husband and my income into the offering, but if I do that, I don't have enough in my bank account to handle all of our expenses for this month. And if I, if I give it the next month, I, I don't even have a job lined up right now. So Pastor Eric, what I'm asking you to do, I'm not even asking you what, what to do. I'm just saying, would you pray for me? That was basically her request. And I said, absolutely, because I was not about to give you an answer of what you should do. This is 100% between you and God. So we prayed, she went home, and God absolutely spoke to her through a song of all things that he brought to her mind. Basically, the song was, I'm going to do it again. I've done it. I have shown myself to be faithful. I'm going to do it again. And she felt like that was confirmation enough for her to drop her tithe in the offering the next weekend, even though she didn't know how God was going to provide. I'm going to fast forward through the story. She tells it a lot more eloquently than I do. By the end of the summer, as she had chosen to trust God, even though she didn't have things lined up, when she got to the end of the summer, they actually had some, some credit card bills that came back with a zero balance. You don't owe anything that they'd anticipated they would have to pay stuff. And they're like, what's going on? And they had, they had more than they needed. And then she said, you know what, I can actually tithe right now on some of my tutoring that I've been doing. And she goes, well, if I add up all of that, I mean, she is budgeted and disciplined in a way that I never have been. When she added it all up, it was almost to the dollar what she had an extra that God had provided. And she, it, that mu multiplied her faith. That was God going to provide for her regardless? I believe he was. But the fact that she trusted him and he showed up was something that helped multiply her faith. And, and I want you to hear this. Because when I start using the word tithe, we automatically go, so, oh, see, Eric, you really have taken something about, you know, them lying to God and not treating them holy, and you're making it a, a conversation about our money. And now you're going to say, you want all of us to give 10%, because I know where you're going to go with that, and I am not going to do that. 
Now, hold on, Darlene. Don't jump to conclusions. Wait, please. Give me a second, Mama. Throughout the Old Testament, as God was laying out ways for his people to interact with him, he laid out rules, almost like a parent does for a child. Annika J., your mom still has rules for you. As you get older, those training wheels are going to come off, and hopefully your character has been shaped enough that you don't need the rules anymore because the, the values have been instilled in your heart. When Israel was in its infancy, he gave them a list of rules, and tithing was one of those that he built into the fabric of his community, that we give the first fruits of everything, whether it be money or crops or cattle or even our children. We offer them back to the Lord. We don't kill them. We say, God, I dedicate this child to you, which is what we see Jesus doing in, in, during the Christmas time story. That's one of the things we see is his parents offering him back. But as we grow older, the training wheels come off. And when we get to the New Testament, the training wheels have come off. Because God is not focused on a number or a percentage. He's focused on our hearts. And so rather than giving a simple percentage, you have to give 10%, end of story, you don't even have to think about it. He starts talking about our hearts and trust and things like that. And so rather than giving you a percentage, because here's the thing, I know a lot of people who give away more than 10% of their income and are still consumed by greed, still consumed by their money. And I know a lot of people who are not financially able to give anywhere near 10% of their income, but who are still incredibly generous and incredibly open-handed with both their time, their resources, their stuff, their talents, all that kind of stuff. But what I really want to lean into here is your heart. And so what I'm going to do is instead of giving you a cut and dry number, end of story, we don't even have to have a conversation with God, I'm going to do the same thing I, that I did with Heather, which is point you back to him and say, you have a conversation with him. But let's go ahead. You don't need to turn here, actually. Let's just go ahead and stick it up on the board. Can you put 2 Corinthians up there for me? Give me 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verses 7 and 8 to begin with. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he says this, and this, this is the heart of it. This is what the New Testament talks about in giving. Each of you must make up your own mind about how much to give. Oh, gee, thanks. That's really helpful. But don't feel sorry that you must give, and don't feel that you're forced to give. Just real briefly, before I keep reading this. A couple of weeks ago, my, my wife and I took our boys to... a. Uh, a, a, a gem and rock fair over at the fairgrounds. And while we were there, my youngest, Grayson, accidentally jostled a table, knocked a little stone angel off, it broke its wing. And of course, it ended up being the most expensive thing in the entire booth, right? And, and after have a, having a conversation with the owner of the booth, we agreed that we would pay for 50% of its original cost. And Kathy and I said, Grayson, we'll cover half of that expense, and you're going to cover half of that expense. Oh, my boy went... It was, it was difficult for him. He likes his money. Um, we, were, we were sitting outside getting ready to go, and Grayson's just... I go, what's up, bud? He's like, why did I have to break that angel? And I go, buddy, maybe God wanted you to have the angel. He's like, I'm mad at God. What? He made me spend my money. A lot of us approach God that way. I'm mad at you, God, because you're making me... Give some of my money. Don't ask me for that. Don't feel sorry that you must give. And don't feel that you are forced 
to give because God loves people who love to give. This is about your heart. Don't give out of a sense of obligation. Don't give out of a sense of God is going to damn you if you don't or he is going to love you less if you don't. Give because he has been generous to you and give as a declaration of your trust in him. God can bless you with everything you need and you will always have more than enough to do all kinds of good things for others. Now notice what he just said there. If you give, it's an act of declar- it's a declaration to, to God, but mainly to yourself that I trust you. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my provision. I trust you more than I trust this. I'm laying down my rival God. And if you do that, he will provide, and oftentimes he will provide more than you expect, not so that you can be comfortable, not so that you can get season tickets to go see your favorite you know, sports team, so that you can be generous with others. There's a a term in scripture, blessed in order to be a blessing, right? Our blessings are not for ourselves alone, that we are blessed to be blessings to others. And this is just another example of that. Can we go to verse 10? Um, So verses 10 and 11, he continues on. He says, for example, God gives seed to farmers and and through them he provides everyone with food. And he will increase what you have so that you can give even to those in need. You will be blessed in every way and you will be able to keep being generous. God knows what you need. He is God and you are not. There is a rival God for your heart. And quite often, this is the biggest rival God we've got. And so our act of giving is not a requirement that we have to feel sullen and angry about. God is asking for this because he's asking for your heart. And this morning, the invitation to you is to, is to have a conversation with God. The reason we took offering beforehand is because I did not want you to feel like you were required to have an answer right now. I want you to have time to mull over this. If you don't call Lighthouse home, I hope that this will still be a conversation you have with God. God, what is the God that I trust? Who, where am I really placing my trust? And God, what does it look like for me to place my trust in you? Is there a number? Is there a percentage? Guys, I'm not asking for you. If you have not given, I'm not asking for you to just jump to 10%. I'm not even telling you what to do. Quite honestly, if any of you just started giving something as an act of of dependence upon God, I would rejoice, not because we want your money, but because I want you to realize that God is faithful and he will provide. And the only way that you experience that is like Heather experienced is when you step out in faith. And the more you step out in faith, the more you get to see that God is good and he is faithful. So I will not give you a percentage. I will not give you an amount. I will simply say, have a conversation with God. Maybe even have a conversation about the way that this this discussion we've been having this morning makes you feel. Because I would imagine for some of you, you wish you just skipped today. I mean, except for the child dedication. Maybe that we'd just be done at that point. But this is an invitation to trust. 
And here would be my request. Have a conversation with God. If he gives you a number or percentage, just start there. And try it for six months. And just see what God does. This is the only area in Scripture, the only area in Scripture where God says, test me in this. See if I will not be faithful in providing what you need. Test me. And so I would encourage you to do that. Try it for six months. And let me just make, some, make this statement. If, at the end of those six months, your finances are not in a better place and your heart is not in a better place than it was at this point, then I will give you every penny back that you gave to the church. Because at the end of the day, it's not about your money. It's about your heart. So who are you going to trust? Who is your real God? Father God, we pray that you would help yourself to our lives, that we would operate from a different value system One that says, my trust is in you. I will follow you. Everything I have is yours, God. So show me what you want to do with my life, with my time, with my resources. To do what it is that you want to bring about. Because God, at the end of the day, we want your will to be done. Way more than we want to live comfortable lives. And if that is not true of us, then God... Bring us to the point where that is true of us, that what we want more than anything is to see your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, way more than we want to be comfortable. Help yourself to our lives, Jesus. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. That's it. We're done. Have a wonderful week.